The sermon text today is Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in it saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I think it's uh, probably self evident to most of us that we have a crisis of hope in our day. There's a crisis of hope. I mean, I don't know whether it's rooted in the pandemic or if it's rooted in the political instability or if it's rooted in the cultural, uh, just the decline of the culture at a kind of a meteoric rate, but there is a crisis of hope. Now, a few weeks back, I reminded you that Augustine, the church father of the fourth century, said that all men and women, whatever station they are at life, they want to be happy. We want to be happy. I mean, that is true to every single one of us. You don't get up without thinking about your own happiness. And yet without hope, you'll hardly be happy. There's no happiness without hope. And the hope that you have to have, though, is something uh, objective, something true, something real. It's not hoping on a pipe dream. We need something solid and sure in which to root our hope. Well, I think this passage in Revelation 5 offers this kind of hope. You know, if you, if you think about how John structured the book of Revelation... Uh, the first three chapters, he's speaking to the churches in Asia Minor. They're under great pressure. They're under great threat. Many people were dying for their faith in Christ. He wants to give them a hope. 
He wants to give them something solid that they could hold on to while they were undergoing such fierce persecution. And so in chapters 4 and 5, there's this scene. He's giving us eyewitness details of this scene where he's actually in the throne room of God. Chapter 4 begins that way where he sees God being worshipped by all creation. But then in chapter 5, the scene doesn't change. It's still the throne room of God, but there's a drama that's being introduced, like a, like a three-stage play. And the first stage is, is one of despair and fright, that John is in deep sadness. It's like a tragedy has taken place in the very throne room of God. You're, you're wondering, how can this be? Where's the hope, John is thinking. But then the second scene in chapter 5, this lion of the tribe of Judah, this lamb appears and hope is restored. And then you see in the third scene that at the coming of this lamb that the entire universe erupts with joy over the hope that is provided for him. This passage offers us hope. I don't care what kind of time or culture we live in. This is a bedrock upon which you can stand and you can find great hope. Uh, let's look at it first, though, in this scene. I want you to see the despair, the darkness. The, the whole passage begins with a sense of heaviness. Read with me in verses 1 through 4. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals and I saw the mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So you, you have this scene where the Apostle John is weeping loudly because nobody was able to open the scroll. Now, the scene itself, though, is has God's on the throne. And in his right hand, in his ruling hand, in his hand of power, he holds a scroll. Well, it begs the question, what's the scroll? Well, it's no small Subject of debate, for sure. But the general consensus is this scroll contains the degrees and the plans of God, all the things that will yet take place. The scroll literally holds the destiny of human history. It's as if all the human history sits in his palm. God holding the scroll. Incredible scroll. Now, the scroll is sealed with seven seals. Now, this is not unusual in ancient documents. A, a scroll would be sealed to protect it. And, and the, the more important the document, the more seals might be on the scroll, seven being the high number. But, but it's more than just an important document. The fact that it's sealed means it hasn't been done. It hasn't been accomplished. In other words, the plans and the decrees of God are unrevealed. They're not yet complete. And then John sees this mighty angel. And the mighty angel proclaims in a voice that literally goes to the entire earth and to under the earth. The realm of the dead are hearing this angel proclaim. And then to the heavens. And the angel says, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who's worthy? The question goes forth into all the universe. And you know what? Silence. Nothing. No one responds. 
There's no voice in heaven. There's no demon. There's no angel. There's no created being. There's no prophet. There's no human. No one answers this call. No one answers the call. Now, can you imagine that for a minute? If the scroll contains all that has yet to take place, if the scroll contains all the redemptive acts of God and the judgment upon the ungodly, if, if none of that is unsealed and it won't take place, can you imagine life? I mean, there's, there's no hope for justices, for injustices being made right. There's no hope for the tragedies being answered. There's no hope for a new heavens and a new earth. There's no hope for deliverance for people bound in sin. It will be as if sin will continue to reign and Satan will continue to rule and death will continue to destroy. Can you imagine God's plans of perfect consummation of all things not happening? That's why he weeps. He weeps. He weeps because who is worthy. No one is found worthy. Now, you know, we live in this day and age where whether you're here as a Christian or not, maybe you're not even religious, uh, we are confronted with all kinds of burdens and hardships and difficulties. We have those all about us. I mean, again, whether it's more physical in terms of COVID or just aging or some sickness or whether it's political, you just are overwhelmed by the rancor between parties Whatever the trauma is, it, it takes away our hope. It, it, it reminds us of the burden, the brokenness, and the instability of our world. Now, even if you're just theologically ambivalent, you're still confronted with more existential questions. Why am I here? Is life an illusion? Are the, are the temporal relationships that I am in, do they have no eternal value? Uh, do I just live in a world that just grinds through generations, one after another after another, with no hope of change? These are burdening questions. I mean, they just remove our hope. I read a book called Intellectuals by Paul Johnson. It's a book probably about covers the life of 12 or so odd philosophers that have written over the past two, 300 years, whose thoughts, it's Nietzsche and Rousseau, Voltaire, Russell, it's, it's, they've influenced the way we think. These philosophers, these fleshly philosophers trying to offer to us wisdom for this life, how to have hope. Amazing thing about the book is it traces out their ideas and how it's affected our culture today, but it also shows that all their lives were train wrecks, just train wrecks. You wouldn't want to follow it if you saw the end of their lives. We've forgotten about their lives because it's so long ago, but their ideas still stay with us and they give us no hope. Without hope, you're going to weep. And you never hear the wails of a person weeping like when there is no hope left for them. Then they weep. Then they weep. Now for the Christian here, you have a hope. We grieve, there's no doubt about it, but we grieve as those with hope. We have a hope. We have this God who sits on the throne with a scroll in his hand, who is sovereign over all history. 
In other words, your hope is not in the new administration vaccine. Your hope is not in Nostradamus or the fortune cookie that you open that gives you some promise of tomorrow. It's not rooted in some horoscope. Our, our hope is rooted in God, the one who sits with the scroll in his right hand. This doesn't mean we don't have tragedies. And tragedies for the Christian are still a theological dilemma trying to wrestle through these things. But I want to remind you that the injustices and the tragedies and the evils that we face, they're theological dilemmas for all religions. All struggle with these. And even those that think they take a pass by not having a religion, as if believing, well, I don't believe in a God, you still have an issue with evil. What is evil without God? God establishes morality. What is immorality without morality? There is no hope for the one without God to somehow avoid the problem of evil. You just have trouble figuring out what evil is. Now, the, the, I think Christianity offers probably the most realistic and hopeful response to the tragedies and the difficulties of this life. The Christian faith teaches us that yes, there are tragedies and evil in this world, and yet God, who is sovereign over all things, can and will, with his power, direct them to ends for which we will ultimately thank him for. That even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of the burden of this world, a world that is without hope, we can have hope that he will bring things to an end for which we'll thank him. And we see this in the early church. So in Acts chapter 4, when the apostles were being beginning to be crushed by the religious leadership, and Peter and John were taken into prison and brought before the Sanhedrin and told not to preach anymore. Well, after, after suffering from their hand, they left. And here's what they record. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. That is the persecution that's going to come upon the church. They lifted their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord. So in the midst of adversity, they're claiming the sovereignty of God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything that is in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, by the Holy Spirit, why do the, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered against the Lord and against the anointed. He's quoting Psalm 2. He says, for truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plans had predestined to take, to take place. Even in the midst of suffering, they saw God, they found hope in the sovereign God of the universe who is causing all things to happen for his good and for his purposes. This is why we don't need to worry. It's not that you won't face difficulties in life. You most assuredly will. It's not that you may not face persecution. You may. But the grace of God causing all things to move towards their right ends is yours. It's a basis of hope. God will give you the grace. You know, some of us worry about, what are we going to do if this happens? And what am I going to do if I get cancer? Or how am I going to handle this situation and difficulty? God will give you the grace today. You know, the Puritans talked about dying grace, that God gives dying grace to people. In other words, he will give them the grace that they need to die when that day comes to them. 
We don't need to worry about that right now. We rest our hope in a sovereign God who has a scroll in his hands, who reigns over all things. That's where our hope is. It will not be found in this world. It will be found in his right hand. But then you see the scene moves. John is weeping over uncertainty, over the nature of one found worthy. And then an elder comes to him and gives him glorious news. Look with me at 5 to 7. He says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Okay, this is an incredible scene. This is a, a coronation scene. You have John weeping. The elder comes and says, weep no more. One has been found. We have found one who will break the seals and open the scroll. We found one who has prevailed, who has conquered. Now, of course, John, who is this? Well, this is the line of the tribe of Judah. This is the root of Jesse. These are messianic figures speaking to a Messiah to come, a coming king with power and authority. Lion stands for strength and power. And he will come and prevail. He will come and win. And so John looks. And what does John see? He doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. He says, a lamb as though it had been slain. Now, this isn't two animals. You know, in Revelation, it often goes in this cycle. John will, will hear something, and then he sees something, and what he sees interprets what he hears. So he hears about this lion coming who has prevailed and who is successful, but then he sees a lamb, a slaughtered lamb. What's happening here? Well, the lamb interprets the lion, right? This Messiah, not surprisingly, Jesus, has come as a king, and he has conquered. But he conquers through his own death. He conquers through laying down his own life. The victory of the lion is rooted in the suffering of the lamb. The lamb that was led to the slaughter, according to Isaiah, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who is to take away the sins of the world. Did we, need, did we not see last week in Luke 19 on Palm Sunday, how does Jesus enter the city? Enters as king. I mean, they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They said it, he said it, he's the king. But on Friday, what do we find? A lamb. A lamb who would be slaughtered. The lion is the lamb. But you see this slaughtered lamb standing of all things. It's not, a hump, it's not a hunk of flesh that it would be if a body was taken off a cross and just laid, just be a hunk of flesh. But he's standing. He's not just standing, but he's standing in victory. He has these seven horns and seven eyes and seven spirits. Seven is just a word for expressing fullness, like seven days of the week, seven days of creation. It's the fullness of God in creation. So it says this lamb has these seven horns. It's full of power. Eyes, full of wisdom. He knows all things. And he's full of God's spirit. And he's standing. 
You know, if you go back to the first chapter in Revelation, Jesus says to John, I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. I'll never die. I'll never die. And so this lamb who is standing, it's incredible. He walks to the throne and takes the scroll. Who's worthy to do that? Who can approach God and say, I will carry out all of your plans? This is a coronation. God is, is making him a king. You will now complete and sovereignly bring to bear all the plans that I have for this world. You will bring the destiny of this world to completion. It rests on the shoulders of Christ himself. He will bring all things to their perfect end. It all rests on him. This is where hope can be. This is where hope is in this lion lamb. If you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, you have to fight for some degree of hope. You are living in a world that has perils before you in large measure. Now, you may be wise and sharp and wealthy to avoid many of these perils, but there's one peril you will not avoid. It's a peril that we all face, and it is our own mortality. It's the brevity of our own life. We will face our own death. What are you going to do with that? How can you maintain a solid hope in the midst of knowing that your end will come at a time that you won't choose? How can you live and get up in the morning? You know, what we tend to do, all of us face this issue, it's harder for you who are young, I, I grant you that. But what we tend to do is deny. We just deny it. We distract ourselves, we think about other things, we get busy in professions and careers, making money, we get busy having families, relationships, finding success, and we just don't think about it. So there's an article written by Tim Keller in the Atlantic magazine. And uh, the article is entitled, Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. Now, he has pancreatic cancer. So he probably is one that can speak to it. How does your faith grow in the face of death? And he's talking about this one moral philosopher about how the denial of death has been with us, but it's in an increased measure. But Kelly goes on to point out that Calvin said, well, it may be increased now, but, but it's always been there. Uh, John Calvin wrote these words probably close to 400 years ago. He said, we undertake all things as if we were establishing immortality for ourselves on earth. If we see a dead body, we may philosophize briefly about the fleeting nature of life, but the moment we turn away from the sight, the thought of our own Perpetuity remains fixed in our minds. Then Keller goes on to say, death is an abstraction for us. Oh, it's something technically true, but un unimaginable as a personal reality. I, I would ask you, if you're not a Christian, to consider this, to consider your own mortality, and to consider what hope do you have, what, what follows, what will you do? I would just ask you to consider it. Now, I, I know we're in a busy world, but, but that you would take the time. And you, it's hard, because we're so easily distracted. Blaise Pascal was a French philosopher in the 18th century, and he says that all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in his room. 
We, we don't want to think. We don't want to stop. And I'm asking you. Dare say I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you to give thought to where is your hope. Now for the Christian here, your hope rests in this sovereign one who oversees all things, who not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from his will. Uh, that's where your hope is. Your hope is not in how hopeful you feel, of course. It, it, it's in something more objective and something more fixed. Your hope is in him. Now it doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle, we're not going to have setbacks, and we're not going to have points of failure. But when we do, we return to Christ, this lamb, this wounded lamb, to remind ourselves of the hope that we have. This is what Charles Spurgeon would do when he preached on this passage. He drew our eyes to this wounded lamb. He says these words, he says, Why should our exalted Lord appear in his wounds in glory? The wounds, of Jesus are, the wounds of Jesus are his glories, his jewels, his sacred ornaments. These are not the only ornaments of Christ. They are the trophies of his love and of his victory. He has divided the spoil with the strong. He has redeemed for himself a great multitude whom no man can number. And these scars are the memorials of the fight. If Christ loves to retain the thought of his sufferings for his people, how precious should his wounds be to us. Look to Christ. For the Christians suffering and struggling, you feel your hope is wavering, look to Christ. So Robert Murray McShane, many of you know this quote. He says, for every one look you take at yourself, take ten of Christ. For every one look you take at your struggles and your trials and your hardship, take ten of Christ. Look at the wounds. They mark his victory. He is the lamb standing who took the scroll. We can have great hope great hope and it's when he takes a scroll that we move into the third scene notice in the third scene the place the world the universe explodes in worship look with me at eight verses eight through ten and when he had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Can you imagine this? I mean, these elders and these living creatures, glorious beings themselves, fall down and they begin to worship this lamb who is in the center of all things. The center point of the throne room has the lamb at it. He's in the center. And they begin to declare the worthiness of Christ. He alone is worthy. And he's worthy because of the nature of redemption. He has redeemed us. He has delivered us. He has paid the ransom price, the debt of our sin over which you and I could never afford to pay. He has taken our place. He has been our substitute. He has lived the perfect life that God could say, well done, well done. And it's now in Christ that we've been delivered so that him dying for us means that we can be offered freedom and forgiveness through faith in him. He is our redemption. That's why they're saying he's worthy. You did it. You redeemed a people for God. But he's worthy not just in redeeming us. Look at the scope of his redemption. People from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. This doesn't mean he's saving every single person. 
but from every created group and language and nation. He will have representatives before him, worshiping him. And not just the nature of redemption and the scope of redemption. They're saying he's worthy because of the results of redemption. We are now a kingdom. We are now priests. We will reign with him forever. Let your mind ponder on that for a minute. Your citizenship is in heaven. You're now part of an eternal kingdom of which cannot be shaken. And you're now priests. You're now worshipers. You'll reign with him forever. At that point, the place just goes wild. You see in 11 and 12, now the angels jump in. Look at 11 and 12 with me. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads, thousands upon thousands, it's incalculable, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, and honor, and glory. And blessing. So this sevenfold blessing. Now all the angels are piping in. Can you imagine? Your ears just rocking with noise. But but then the rolling thunder keeps going. It keeps going in these wider concentric circles, and it takes in the whole creation. Look at eleven and twelve. Then I looked and I heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels oh sorry. 13 and 14, I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing, honor, and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Can you even begin to grasp a choir of the universe declaring the worthiness of Christ? Everything on the earth, everything under the earth, everything on the sea, under the sea, everything in the sky, the furthest planet, all proclaiming the worthiness of Christ as the Lamb who has ransomed us so that we might be a people of God, that we might be delivered from our sin. God's not overlooking sin. He's not ignoring sin. He has sent one to save and to deliver us. Can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine being part of that scene? What is this? How does this challenge your own view of worship? I mean, do you not see how Christ and his gospel must be central to all things? And this is why we gather. When we gather and we're, and we're singing these songs, we are a colony of heaven. We're like an outpost of glory. We're doing what they're doing. We're mirroring them. This is why we get out of our comfortable beds. This is why we leave our warm, toasty homes and we come to worship together. The church gathers to give worship to the worthiness of the one who has died to make us his own. Worship is not about us. You know, we're so concerned. Aren't you tired of spending time thinking about yourself? You get up thinking about yourself. You go to bed thinking about yourself, and there will be a day you don't need to anymore. You will think about the one. Do you notice he's in the center? What binds us together is not our political identities, our educational philosophies, our social class, our ethnicity. No, what binds us together is Christ alone. He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your trust. And notice he's not, just the, he's not just a local deity. He's a global Lord. Every tribe, every nation, every language, all 6,528 
known languages, will have representatives around him worshiping him. He is a global Lord. He is not the Lord of some white, social, middle-class, conservative type. He's going to have them all because he saved them all. That's the kind of worship that we're destined for. Ought to change the way we look at worship now. Folks, this is the only hope I can give you on this Easter morning. This is the good news to give you, that the lion, the lamb, is now seated at the right hand of God. He holds the scroll. That's our hope. It's our hope. We don't know what tomorrow holds, if you're honest with yourself. You have no idea the light or the dark providences that await us in the next week, month, or year. But we rest with incredible hope over the Lamb who holds the scroll. He was worthy, and he's worthy of our worship. I pray that strengthens your heart or draws you even to faith in Christ for those who have no hope. Let's take a moment and ask God, just in silence, speak to God. Call upon this Lamb for grace and help. Or give him your worthy worship. And I'll pray for us in a moment.